I'm super excited that we're about a week away from the launch of my new supplement line, Adapt Naturals. We're starting with a daily stack of five products called the Core Plus Bundle, which is designed to add back in what the modern world is crowded out and help you feel and perform your best. I wanted to give you a quick sneak peek into one of the products in the bundle, BioVail Myco. Edible mushrooms like reishi, chaga, lion's mane, and turkey tail have been used for over 7,000 years in traditional cultures to support health and well-being. Today, they're the focus of intensive scientific research with over 400 studies published on turkey tail alone. Mushrooms have a wide range of benefits from supporting immune and cellular health to protecting our brain and nervous system as we age to maintaining healthy blood sugar and cholesterol levels. BioVail Myco is a blend of the eight mushrooms that have shown the greatest health benefits in scientific studies. Reishi, chaga, lion's mane, cordyceps, maitake and shiitake, agaricus, and turkey tail. It contains a substantial amount, 225 milligrams of each mushroom, and a large amount, 1800 milligrams, of total mushrooms. Unlike many mushroom products on the market, BioVail Myco is a full spectrum concentrate using all of the parts of the mushrooms, each with different health benefits, rather than just a simple extract. It contains a very high level, over 95% of active ingredients because it's grown on sorghum rather than common materials like straw, sawdust, or compost. Finally, BioVail Myco is a rich source of beta-glucan, a type of soluble fiber that promotes optimal immune and cellular function and may help to maintain normal blood sugar and cardiovascular health. It'll be exclusively available in the Adapt Naturals Core Plus bundle, which you'll be able to order in about a week. Stay tuned for a special episode of the podcast next week, where I'll be discussing the Adapt Naturals line in more detail with Tracy O'Shea, Clinical Director of the Adapt Practitioner Training Program. We'll talk about why I decided to launch a supplement line after 15 years in the functional medicine space, why I chose the initial five products we're including in the Core Plus bundle, how to take the products and get the most of them, and how they can help you to achieve your health goals wherever you're starting from. Hey everybody, Chris Kresser here. Welcome to another episode of Revolution Health Radio. You know, there's so much confusion about diet out there. Eggs are bad for you. Wait, eggs are good for you. Fat is bad. Wait, fat is good and carbs are bad. Skipping breakfast causes weight gain. Wait, skipping breakfast or intermittent fasting is great for weight loss and metabolic health. It's enough to make you crazy, right? And these are just a few of the many contradictory nutrition claims that have been made in the media over the past decade. And it's no wonder that people are confused about what to eat. So in this episode, I'm going to summarize my thoughts on what constitutes an optimal human diet based on the most current research and also an evolutionary perspective. And my hope is that this will bring some clarity to all of the confusion and misunderstanding that's out there and help you make more informed and better choices for your own dietary approach. Ready? Let's dive in. So pretty much everyone has an opinion on the optimal human diet from your personal trainer to your UPS driver, from your nutritionist to your doctor, and they're all convinced they're right. Even the experts disagree, and they can all point to at least some studies to support their view, which is part of what makes this so confusing for the average person who just wants to figure out how to eat to promote better health and longer lifespan. Now on the surface, 
the studies that these different groups of people will point to seem credible since they're published in peer-reviewed journals and they come out of respected institutions like Harvard Public Health. And this has led to massive confusion amongst both the general public and even amongst health professionals. As, as you may know, I've spent the last six years training uh, over 600 healthcare practitioners in functional medicine, and we've trained over a thousand health coaches as well. And I can tell you firsthand that there is a ton of confusion, even amongst people who have a lot of training in the health field. And then, of course, there's the proliferation of diet books and, you know, the latest popular diet fad and tons of books on that and websites, social media accounts, etc. And I think this has led to a, a justifiable mistrust in public health recommendations and media reporting on nutrition. Because if somebody sees uh, the cover of Time magazine, uh, Newsweek magazine, and, and it's a story about how eggs are going to kill you, and then you know a few years later, the cover is eggs actually aren't that bad, and, and then that just goes back and forth over and over, it's not, that's not a situation that engenders trust. Uh, let's just say it that way. And millions of dollars and decades of scientific research haven't really added clarity. If anything, they've further muddied the waters. So why is this? Because as we'll talk about in the show, I think we've been asking the wrong questions and we're using the wrong methods. So if you're confused about what to eat and frustrated by the contradictory headlines that are constantly popping up in your newsfeed, you are not alone. The current state of nutritional research and how the media reports on it virtually guarantees confusion. In this podcast, my goal is to step back and look at the question of what we should eat through a variety of lenses, including ancestral health, archaeology, anthropology, evolutionary biology, anatomy and physiology, and biochemistry, rather than relying exclusively on observational nutrition research, which, as I will explain, is highly problematic, and that's saying it nicely. So with this information, again, my hope is that you'll be able to make more informed choices about what you eat and what you feed your family members. So let's start with the kind of top-line question here. What is the optimal human diet? Well, I don't think there is one. There's really no way to answer that question because there's no single optimal diet for every human. When I explain this to people I talk to, they immediately get it. It makes sense to them that we shouldn't all be following the exact same diet. Yet that's exactly what public health recommendations and dietary guidelines assume. And I would argue that this fallacy is both the greatest source of confusion and the most significant obstacle to answering our key questions about nutrition. Humans share a lot in common, but we're also different in many ways. We have different genes, different gene expression, health status, activity levels, life circumstances, and goals. So if you imagine two different people, a 55-year-old sedentary male office worker who's 60 pounds overweight and who has prediabetes and hypertension, and a 23-year-old female Olympic athlete who's training for three or four hours a day is in fantastic health and is attempting to build muscle for an upcoming competition, should they eat exactly the same diet? Of course not. It's kind of ridiculous to assume that that would be the case. And yeah, diet advice is often based on that assumption. So 
that might be an extreme example, but it's no less true that what works for a, a young single male CrossFit enthusiast who's getting plenty of sleep and isn't under a lot of stress won't work for a mother of three who also works outside the house and is burning the candle at both ends. These differences in our genes, behavior, lifestyle, gut microbiome, etc., influence how we process macronutrients, protein, carbs, and fat, and micronutrients, vitamins, minerals, and trace minerals, which in turn determine our response to uh, various foods and dietary approaches. So let me give you a few different examples here. People with lactase persistence, which is a genetic adaptation that allows them to digest lactose, the sugar in milk, into adulthood, are likely to respond better to dairy products than people that don't have this adaptation. Populations with historically high starch intake tend to produce more salivary amylase. Amylase is an enzyme that helps us to break down starch than populations with historically low starch intake. We know that changes to gut microbiota can help with the assimilation of certain nutrients. An example of this is that studies of Japanese people have found that their gut bacteria produce specific enzymes that help them break down the complex polysaccharides in seaweed, which can be otherwise difficult for humans to digest. Organ meats and shellfish are extremely nutrient-dense and a great choice for most people, but not maybe for someone with hemochromatosis, which is a genetic disorder that leads to aggressive iron storage, since those foods are so rich in iron. And then we have large, well-controlled studies involving up to 350,000 participants that have found that on average, higher intakes of saturated fat are not associated with higher risk of heart disease. But is that true for people with certain genes that make them hyperabsorbers of saturated fat and can lead to a significant increase in LDL particle number, uh, which is a marker that's associated with a greater risk of cardiovascular disease? So that's just a partial list, but it's enough to make the key point, which is that there are important differences that determine what an optimal diet is for each of us, but those differences are rarely explored in nutrition studies. Most research on diet is almost exclusively focused on top-down population-level recommendations, and since a given dietary approach will yield variable results among different people, this keeps us stuck in confusion and controversy. It's also kept us stuck in what food philosopher Georgi Scrinis has called the ideology of nutritionism, which he defines as, quote, the reductive approach of understanding food only in terms of nutrients, food components, or biomarkers, like saturated fats, calories, glycemic index, abstracted out of the context of foods, diets, and bodily processes. In other words, it's a focus on quantity, not quality. So this is, I think, a huge mistake that we have made in our study of nutrition uh, over the past few decades, you know, really kind of isolating these various food components and looking at them myopically rather than thinking about the context in which those components of food appear. Are they showing up in, in the context of a nutrient-dense whole foods diet? Or are they showing up, you know, in, in processed and refined foods where those nutrients have been uh, fortified or added in? Nutrition research has essentially assumed that a carbohydrate is a carbohydrate, a fat is a fat, and a protein is a protein, no matter what type of food they come in. 
if one person eats 50% of calories from fat in the form of donuts, pizza, candy, and fast food, and another person eats 50% of calories from fat in the form of whole foods like meat, fish, avocados, nuts, and seeds, they could still be lumped together in the same 50% of calories from fat group in most studies. And again, when I explain this to the average person, they see how ridiculous that is. And yet that is how a lot of nutrition research is done. There are some signs that the tide is turning. Um, there are some more recent studies that have much better ex uh, experimental designs. But the vast majority of epidemiological studies that have served as the basis for public health recommendations and dietary guidelines are plagued by this focus on quantity over quality, or what Georgi Skrinis calls nutritionism. So I think we can hopefully all agree that there shouldn't be any one-size-fits-all approach to diet, but that doesn't mean that there aren't core nutrition principles that apply to everyone. This is the flip side of that coin. For example, I think we can agree that a steady diet of donuts, chips, candy, soda, and other highly processed and refined foods is inherently unhealthy. And most people would agree that a diet based on whole unprocessed foods is beneficial. It's the middle ground where we get into trouble. Is meat good or bad? If it is bad, does that apply to all meats or just processed meat or red meat? What about saturated fat? Should humans consume dairy products? So. A better question than what is the optimal human diet might be what is a natural human diet, or more specifically, what is the range of foods that human beings are biochemically, physiologically, and genetically adapted to eat? In theory, there are two ways to answer this question. We can look at evolutionary biology, archaeology, medical anthropology, and comparative anatomy and physiology to determine what a natural human diet is. and we can look at it from a biochemical perspective. What essential and non-essential nutrients contribute to human health and where are they found in foods? How various functional components of food influence our body at the cellular and molecular level? And how certain compounds in foods, especially those prevalent in modern industrialized diet, damage our health by inflammation, disruption of the gut microbiome, hormone imbalance, and other mechanisms. So I'm gonna spend the rest of this podcast looking through each of these lenses. Let's start with the evolutionary perspective. Human beings, like all other organisms in nature, evolved in a particular environment, and that evolutionary process dictated our biology and physiology as well as our nutritional needs. Isotope analysis from archaeological studies suggests that our hominid ancestors have been eating meat for at least two and a half million years. There's also wide agreement that going even further back in time, our primate ancestors likely ate a diet similar to modern chimps, which we now know eat vertebrates. The fact that chimpanzees and other primates evolve complex behavior like using tools and hunting in packs indicates the importance of animal foods in their diet and ours. There's also anatomical evidence for meat consumption. The structure and function of the digestive tract of all animals can tell us a lot about their diet, and the same is true for humans. The greatest portion, about 45% of the total gut volume of our primate relatives, is the large intestine, which is good for breaking down fiber, seeds, and other hard-to-digest plant foods. But in humans, the greatest portion of our gut volume, about 56%, is the small intestine, which suggests we're adapted to eating more bioavailable and energy-dense foods like meat and cooked starches that are easier to digest. Now, 
Some advocates of plant-based diets have argued that humans are herbivores because of our blunt nails, small mouth opening, flat incisors and molars, and relatively dull canine teeth, all of which are characteristics of herbivorous animals. But this argument ignores the fact that we evolve complex methods of procuring and processing food from hunting to cooking to using sharp tools to rip and tear flesh. These methods and tools take the place of anatomical features in other animals that serve that same function. Also, humans have relatively large brains and small guts compared to our primate relatives. Most researchers believe that consuming meat and fish is what led to our larger brains and smaller guts compared to other primates because animal foods are more energy dense and they're easier to digest than plant foods. We can also look at genetic changes that are suggestive of adaptation to animal foods. Most mammals stop producing lactase, the enzyme that breaks down lactose, the sugar in milk, after they're weaned. But in about one-third of humans worldwide, lactase production persists into adulthood. This allows those humans to obtain nutrients and calories from dairy products without becoming ill. If we were truly herbivores that aren't supposed to eat animal foods at all, we would not have developed genetic adaptations like that. And then we have studies of contemporary hunter-gatherers. Uh, so groups like the Maasai, the Inuit, the Kitabans, the Tukasinta, the Kung, the Ashe, the Tsimane, and the Hadza, when we look at research on those extant hunter-gatherer groups in the, in the 20th century, without exception, they consumed a combination of animal and plant foods. And they would go to great lengths to obtain plant or animal foods when they're in short supply. For example, in one analysis of field studies of almost 230 hunter-gatherer groups, researchers found that animal foods provided the dominant source of calories, 68%, compared to gathered plant foods, which was 32%. And only 14% of those societies, those 230 groups that were studied, got more than 50% of their calories from plant foods. Another report on 13 different field studies of the last remaining hunter-gatherers carried out in the early and mid-20th century found similar results. Animal food comprised 65% of total calories on average, compared with 35% from plant foods. The amount of protein, fat, and carbohydrates, the proportion of animals versus plants, and the macronutrient ratios consumed vary but an ancestral population following a completely vegetarian or vegan diet has never been discovered. What about the lifespan of our Paleolithic ancestors? Critics of paleo or ancestral diets often claim that they're irrelevant uh, because our Paleolithic ancestors all died at a young age. So in other words, why bother even looking at what our ancestors ate? We want to we wanna live longer lifespans than they did, so we should be you know, updating our approach. This is a common myth, it turns out, and it's been debunked over and over by anthropologists. While average lifespan is and was lower among hunter-gatherers than ours is today, that's heavily skewed by high rates of infant mortality, which is mostly due to a lack of emergency medical care and other factors in those populations. The anthropologists Gervin and Kaplan studied lifespan in extant hunter-gatherers and found that if they survived childhood, their lifespans are roughly equivalent to our own in the, industrial, in the industrialized world, 68 to 78 years. 
And this is notable because hunter-gatherers today survive only in isolated and marginal environments like the Kalahari Desert, the Amazon rainforest, and the Arctic Circle. What's more, in many cases, hunter-gatherers reached those ages without acquiring the chronic diseases that are so common in Western countries. They're less likely to have heart disease, diabetes, dementia, and Alzheimer's, and many other debilitating chronic conditions. For example, one study of the Simane people in Bolivia found that they have a prevalence of atherosclerosis that's 80% lower than ours in the United States, and that 9 in 10 Simane adults aged 40 to 94 had completely clean arteries and no risk of heart disease whatsoever. The researchers also found that the average 80-year-old Simane male had the same vascular age as an American in his mid-50s. So. Uh, the idea that our hunter-gatherer ancestors were all dropping dead when they were 30 or 40 and lived with kind of miserably poor health is just not supported by the research. You probably know that the human body is mostly water. What you probably don't know is that everything else in your body is 50% amino acids. These building blocks of life are essential for health and fitness. No matter how you like to move, whatever you do to stay fit, amino acids are essential. This is why Keon Aminos is my fundamental supplement for fitness. I drink them every day for energy, to build muscle, and to recover faster. Keon Aminos is backed by over 20 years of clinical research, has the highest quality ingredients, no fillers or junk, undergoes rigorous quality testing, and tastes amazing with all natural flavors. So if you want more energy, lean muscle, and faster recovery, you need to get Keon Aminos. You can now save 20% on subscriptions and 10% on one-time purchases. Just go to getkion.com slash Cresser. That's G-E-T-K-I-O-N dot com slash Cresser. Vitamin C is a critical nutrient for immune function and antioxidant protection. Yet most people don't get enough in their diet, and most vitamin C supplements contain synthetic forms, GMO, sugar, or allergens like soy or corn. This is why I recommend whole food forms of vitamin C, which contain the full spectrum of vitamin C activity without GMOs or other junk. And my favorite whole food vitamin C product is Essential C from Paleo Valley. It's made with three of the most potent vitamin C rich superfoods on the planet, one of which is 120 times more potent than an orange. Nothing synthetic, no weird questionable ingredients, just food. Right now they're offering my community an exclusive 15% off discount. Just go to paleovalley.com slash chris and use the code CRESSER15 to get 15% off. When you put all of this evidence together uh, from the evolutionary perspective, it suggests three themes. Number one, meat and other animal products have been part of the natural human diet for at least two and a half million years. Number two, all ancestral human populations that have been studied ate a combination of plants and animals. And number three, human beings can survive on a wide variety of foods and macronutrient ratios within the general template of plants and animals that they ate. Okay, so let's move on to the biochemical perspective. Understanding ancestral diets and their relationship to the health of hunter-gatherer populations is a good starting place, but on its own, it doesn't prove that such diets are the best option for us modern humans. To know that, we need to examine the question from a biochemical perspective as well. We need to know what nutrients are essential to human health, 
where they're found in food, and how various components of the diet and compounds in food affect our physiology, both positively and negatively. The good news is there are tens of thousands of studies in this category, and collectively they bring us to the same conclusion that we just reached when we were looking through the evolutionary lens. A whole foods diet that contains both plants and animals is the best and in some cases only way to meet our nutrient needs from food. So let's start with nutrient density. This is arguably the most important concept to understand when it comes to answering the question, what should we eat? The human body requires at least 40 different micronutrients for normal metabolic function. And maximizing the nutrient density of our diet should be the primary goal because deficiencies of any of these nutrients can contribute to the development of chronic disease and even shorten our lifespan. There are two types of nutrients in food, macronutrients and micronutrients. Macronutrients refer to the three food substances required in significant amounts in the human diet, namely protein, carbohydrates, and fat. And micronutrients are vitamins, minerals, and other compounds required by the body in smaller amounts for normal physiological function. So the term nutrient density refers to the concentration of micronutrients and amino acids, which are the building blocks of protein in a given food. While carbohydrates and fat are important, they can be provided by the body for a limited amount of time when we can't get enough of them through diet, except for the essential omega-6 and omega-3 fatty acids. On the other hand, micronutrients and the essential amino acids found in protein cannot be manufactured by the body, and that means they must be consumed in the diet. So with this in mind, what are the most nutrient-dense foods? Well, there are a lot of studies that have tried to answer this question. And in one of the most comprehensive pieces of research, which I'll call the Milo study, because that is the name of the, the lead author, the researchers looked at seven major food groups and 25 subgroups, characterizing the nutrient density of these foods based on the presence of 23 qualifying nutrients. And they found that the most nutrient-dense foods were, number one, organ meats, number two, shellfish, number three, fatty fish, then lean fish, vegetables, eggs, poultry, legumes, red meat, milk, fruits, and nuts. As you can gather, eight of the 12 most nutrient-dense categories of foods here are animal foods. All types of meat and fish, vegetables, fruit, nuts, and dairy were more nutrient-dense than whole grains, which received a score of only 83, relative to organ meat's score of 754, shellfish's score of 643, fatty fish of 622, and lean fish of 375. There are a few caveats to the Milo analysis. Number one, it penalized foods for being high in saturated fat and calories. Number two, it did not consider bioavailability. Number three, it only considered essential nutrients. So in this conventional perspective, nutrient-dense foods are defined as those that are high in nutrients but low in calories and saturated fat. But recent evidence has found that saturated fat doesn't necessarily deserve its bad reputation and can be part of a healthy diet. Likewise, some foods that are high in calories, like red meat or full-fat dairy, are also rich in key nutrients and, again, can be beneficial when part of a whole foods diet. Had saturated fat and calories not been penalized in this Milo study, 
Foods like red meat, eggs, dairy products, and nuts and seeds may have appeared even higher on the list. And we have a more recent study. It was actually just published in March of 2022 called Priority Micronutrient Density in Foods. This was by Ty Beal and Flaminio Ortenzi, and it was published in the journal Frontiers in Nutrition. And this was a great addition to understanding nutrient density of food because in this study, they did not penalize foods for uh, saturated fat content. And they also considered the importance of bioavailability, which I'm going to come back to shortly. And what they found was that four of the seven most nutrient-dense foods for organ meats, so it was liver, kidney, uh, heart, and spleen, and in, in, in the way that they ranked foods, a lower score was better in terms of nutrient density. And I just want to give you an idea of just how incredibly nutrient-dense organ meats and uh, shellfish and small dried fish, which were uh, some of the other foods in the top seven, are compared to grains and even nuts and seeds and some of the foods that we might you know, that the conventional world tends to promote as being nutrient-dense. So liver was at the top of the list. It had a score of 11. Spleen was next at 62. Small dried fish, 65. Dark leafy green vegetables, 72. Bivalves like oysters or mussels, uh, rather, were 90. And then kidney was 125 and heart was 163. Then crustaceans, 193. Goat, 205. Beef, 275. Eggs, 281. So even within those animal foods, liver is several times more nutrient-dense than, uh, for example, goat or beef or eggs. But let's go down to, let's see, vitamin A, rich fruits and vegetables. That was 297. Still pretty good. Then you go down to quinoa, you know, which is a, a more uh, recent addition to the diet for some people, but that's uh, you know often thought of as a nutrient powerhouse. That's 789. Uh, then we've got chicken as 1103, so definitely less nutrient dense than red meat and organ meats. You've got other fruits, which is 1147. You've got whole grains, which was 1768. You've got nuts, which were 1,829, and you've got refined grains, which was over 4,000. Uh, it says 4,000 plus because they couldn't even, you know, they're so devoid of nutrients that it really kind of went off the scale here. So again, keep in mind that liver was 11, and now we're talking about whole grains uh, being 1,768. So this is a profound difference, and this was probably the most advanced nutrient density study that's ever been done because it considered bioavailability. That's a crucial factor that's rarely, that was really not considered in previous studies on nutrient density, and it refers to the portion of a nutrient that's absorbed in the digestive tract. The amount of bioavailable nutrients in food is always lower than the amount of nutrients the food contains. And I, I really don't think people understand this. I think they, you know, if they look at a food label and they see, oh, spinach has 115 milligrams of calcium. Awesome, I'll just eat that spinach and I'll be set for calcium. But the bioavailability of calcium from spinach is only 5%. 
So out of that 115 milligrams of, cal uh, of calcium that you see on paper for spinach, only six milligrams is going to be absorbed. So this means you'd have to consume 16 cups of spinach to get the same amount of bioavailable calcium that you would get from one glass of milk because the bioavailability of calcium in dairy is far, far higher. The bioavailability of protein is another really important thing to consider when it comes to nutrient density. And researchers now use a measure called the Protein Digestibility Corrected Amino Acid Score, or PDCAAS, which combines the amino acid profile of a protein with a measure of how much of that protein is absorbed during digestion in order to assess protein bioavailability. And the PDCAAS rates proteins on a scale of 0 to 1, with values close, closer to 1 representing more complete and better absorbed proteins than values um, that are closer to 0. And if you look at that scale, animal proteins have much higher scores than plant proteins. Casein, which is a protein found in, in dairy products, eggs, the whole milk protein, whey, another protein in dairy, and chicken, all have scores of 1 indicating excellent amino acid profiles and high absorption, with turkey, fish, and beef close behind. Plant proteins, on the other hand, tend to have much lower scores. Legumes, on average, score around 0.7. Rolled oats score 0.57. Lentils and peanuts are 0.52. Tree nuts are 0.42. And whole wheat is 0.42. So when you actually factor bioavailability in as um, Ty Beal and Flaminia Ortenzi did in their most recent study on nutrient density, we see that animal products, and particularly organ meats, uh, small dried fish, and shellfish, dramatically outperform most plant foods with the exception of dark leafy green vegetables. So th this is a really big deal, and I think it's not something that is, it's certainly not something that's, that's factored into current conventional dietary recommendations, and it's also not something that tends to come up in, you know, the discussion of plant-based diets versus diets with animal foods. I've, I've discussed this on the Joe Rogan Show a few different times and have, have you know, done my best to get the word out, um, but I, I find that in my conversations with people of all backgrounds, whether just lay people or healthcare practitioners or even researchers, this important consideration of nutrient density and bioavailability is often not very well understood. So another question when it comes to nutrient density is, is which nutrients should we be thinking about? Now, all of these studies on nutrient density, including the most recent Ty Beal and Flaminia Ortenzi study, tend to focus on essential nutrients. Now, in a nutritional context, the term essential doesn't just mean important, it means necessary for life. It means that we need to consume these nutrients from the diet because our bodies cannot produce them on their own and we cannot live uh, without these nutrients or at least we'll experience you know, very, very significant problems if we don't get them. And of course, focusing on these essential nutrients makes sense uh, for all of those reasons. But over the past few decades, many non-essential nutrients have been identified that we now know are also important to our health, even if they are not strictly necessary for us to survive. And these include things like carotenoids, polyphenols, flavonoids, 
lignans, and fiber. And many of these non-essential nutrients are found exclusively in fruits and vegetables. And had these nutrients been included in those um, nutrient density studies, to be fair, fruits and vegetables would have likely scored higher than they did. So I didn't just share all of that information about the nutrient density of, of meat and animal foods to convince you that you should only eat meat and animal foods. But I shared it because those foods are often maligned and people often have the mistaken impression that fruits and vegetables are higher in essential nutrients than animal foods are, which is just simply not correct. So what can we conclude from the biochemical perspective? When we look at a natural human diet through the lens of biochemistry and physiology, we arrive at the same conclusion that we arrived at when we looked at it through the evolutionary lens. Our diet should consist of a combination of organ meat, meats, fish, shellfish, eggs, fresh vegetables and fruits, nuts and seeds, and starchy plants. But how much of the diet should come from animals and how much should come from plants? Well, as I argued earlier in the podcast, the answer to this question should vary based on individual needs. If we look at evolutionary history, we see that on average, humans obtained about 65% of calories from animal foods and 35% of calories from plant foods. But the specific ratios varied depending on geography and several other factors. Now, I want to be clear here. That doesn't mean that two-thirds of what you put on your plate should be animal foods. Remember, calories are not the same as volume, what you actually put on your plate. Meat and animal products are much more calorie dense than plant foods. For example, one cup of broccoli contains just 30 calories compared to 338 calories for a cup of beef steak. This means that even if you're aiming for 50 to 70% of calories from animal foods, plant foods would typically take up between two thirds and three quarters of the actual space on your plate. When we consider the importance of both essential and non-essential nutrients, it also becomes clear that both plant and animal foods play an important role because they're rich in different types of nutrients. And Dr. Sarah Ballantyne has uh, written very eloquently about this in a series on her blog. Um, I'm pulling some of the material from there. So plant foods tend to be rich in vitamin C, carotenoids like lycopene, beta-carotene, lutein, and zeaxanthin. Uh, dietyl sulfides from the allium class of vegetables like garlic, polyphenols, flavonoids, diethyllethionines, lignans, plant sterols and stanols, isothiocyanates and indoles, and then prebiotic fibers, both soluble and insoluble. All of those nutrients, which you know, a growing body of modern research suggests are really important for uh, promoting optimal health and longevity in humans tend to be found in plant foods. And then animal foods tend to be the best sources of uh, bioavailable forms of B12, iron, zinc, preformed vitamin A, which is retinol, high quality protein, creatine, taurine, carnitine, selenium, vitamin K2, vitamin D, and then the long chain omega-3 fats, DHA and EPA, and uh, conjugated linoleic, linoleic acid, uh, another beneficial fat. So if you only eat plants, you're going to be favoring the nutrients that are found in plant foods, those non-essential nutrients that are very beneficial, but don't play the same roles as the essential vitamins and minerals. 
If you only eat animal foods and don't eat any plants, you're going to be favoring the essential nutrients, uh, like the vitamins and minerals and essential amino acids, but you're going to be missing out on the fibers and plant sterols and stanols and polyphenols and flavonoids and things that, that tend to be much more concentrated in plant foods. So for most of us, I think a combination of plant and animal foods makes the most sense. Now, I know a lot of you are thinking about the carnivore diet, which is kind of one of the most recent diet fads. I think it is probably a fad. I don't know for sure, but my guess is that in five or 10 years, we won't be talking about the carnivore diet so much. Could be wrong. We'll, we'll find out. But uh, advocates of the carnivore diet say we don't need plant foods uh, to be healthy and even argue that plant foods are full of toxins and can be harmful. Uh, I don't think there is research to support either of those views. Uh, as I've argued, if you look through the evolutionary lens or the biochemical lens, you see uh, the same results that, um, you know, in the case of the evolutionary lens, all human populations that we know of have eaten a combination of, of animal and plant foods. And then through the biochemical lens, animal and plant foods are rich in different nutrients that uh, studies have shown are, are beneficial to our health. Now, the reason that a lot of people adopt a carnivore diet in the first place is because they're dealing with some kind of chronic health condition, oftentimes a severe one, like a, a severe autoimmune disease, and they have not been able to find relief through any you know, conventional or even alternative types of treatments. And then they adopt a carnivore diet and they have an almost miraculous uh, response. I've seen that firsthand in patients that I've worked with. And I've even recommended the carnivore diet short-term for some patients that I've worked with for that reason. And I don't want to diminish the importance of a treatment, especially you know a natural food-based treatment like this that can have such a profound impact on someone's life and take them from feeling totally debilitated to actually being able to function um, in their day-to-day -day routine. That is extremely important uh, to people on an individual level, and I don't have any judgment towards somebody who chooses to follow a carnivore diet if it has had that kind of, you know, almost life-saving effect. At the same time, I think we need to be willing to explore the potential downsides, especially long-term, of an approach like that. And it doesn't follow necessarily that something that helps in the short term is necessarily going to be safe to do in the long term. And a perfect example of this is fasting. There's a saying that fasting is the cure for all disease. And if you look in the scientific literature, that almost seems to be true. Uh, fasting can have a profound impact on almost every health condition. And I've used fasting with my patients with all kinds of conditions like autoimmune disease, Parkinson's, certainly metabolic issues, you know, diabetes or high blood sugar, uh, weight loss, et cetera. And it is one of the most effective treatments of any type that I've ever used in my 15 years of clinical experience. And yet, I think it's pretty obvious what will happen if you fast for an extended period of time. Um, you know, the, the longer you fast, the less beneficial it becomes. And, the, you know, eventually it will become fatal if you don't eat any food at all for 
a long enough period of time. So that's, that's a prime example of something that can be transformative and even life-saving in the short term, but uh, can cause significant problems over the long term. So I, I would say that the carnivore diet may fall into that category as well. And in some ways, I think it acts almost like a fast because meat is digested much further up in the, di in the digestive tract. And so it's, it's what we call a low residue diet. And it really gives our colon and the lower part of our small intestine a, a, a rest. And I believe that a lot of chronic diseases that plague us today are significantly driven by disrupted gut microbiome, leaky gut, and a lot of other gastrointestinal pathologies. So it makes sense to me that something that would allow us to give our gut an extended period of rest and the ability to heal and recover while also still providing us with, you know, high concentrations of bioavailable forms of essential nutrients could be very healing for a lot of people. And that doesn't necessarily mean that that's the best approach for the average person who is pursuing optimal health and longevity. So I think that's another important point about the carnivore diet or any other special therapeutic diet is we have lots of examples of approaches that are beneficial for certain populations, but are not beneficial for other people, um, people who are not dealing with that particular health condition. Um, for example, a low FODMAP diet has been shown to reduce symptoms in people with IBS, but that doesn't mean everybody should be on a low FODMAP diet. The autoimmune protocol now has some good research behind it, um, you know, which, which removes nuts and seeds and dairy, nightshades and, and, and other food, you know, grains and legumes, but that would be an unnecessarily restrictive diet for the average person to follow. And I, I would never recommend that, you know, someone without an autoimmune condition, and even sometimes people with autoimmune conditions that aren't sensitive to those foods, follow that dietary approach for a long period of time because there's a, a potential of nutrient deficiencies developing. And there are lots of foods that are, you know, for most people are perfectly healthy and, and beneficial that would be excluded in a dietary approach like that. So I think we need to be very careful about extrapolating, you know, therapeutic diets that can benefit people in the short term to, you know, oh, this is something that everybody should be doing for the long term. And uh, unfortunately, that seems to have happened with approaches like a ketogenic diet or a carnivore diet. Okay, so let's circle back here. We've talked about how anthropology and archaeology suggest that it's possible for humans to thrive on a variety of food combinations and macronutrient ratios within the basic template of whole, unprocessed, and uh, animal and plant foods. But let me give you a, a few examples of just how variable these diets can be. The Tukacenta of Papua New Guinea consume almost 97% of calories in the form of sweet potatoes. Uh, they basically just eat sweet potatoes and the few different types of calories that they get come from like the insects that they might eat on the sweet potatoes. Yeah, they, they, their diet is very limited to sweet potatoes and yet they still seem to be healthy and, and doing pretty well. And then we had also, traditional Okinawans who had a very high intake of carbohydrate and a low intake of animal protein and fat, and the Okinawans are, are you know, renowned for their longevity. 
So if we just looked at those two cultures, we might think 100% plant-based diet is the way to go. On the other hand, we know about cultures like the Maasai and the traditional Inuit, which consumed an extremely high percentage of calories from animal protein and fat, especially at certain times of year when they consumed almost no plant foods at all. And they are also remarkably healthy uh, and have you know, you know, longevity, uh, notwithstanding the lack of emergency medical care and other factors that we mentioned earlier. So how much animal versus plant food you consume should really depend on your specific preferences, needs, and goals. For most people, a middle ground seems to be what works best, sticking with the averages that have been observed in the studies of uh, multiple hunter-gatherer cultures around the, the world. So somewhere around two-thirds of calories from animal foods and one-third of calories from plant foods. And, and remember, when I say that, we're talking about calories, not volume. Two-thirds of calories from animal foods and one-third of calories from plant foods would actually look like around two-thirds or even three-quarters of, of your plate being plant foods, and then one-third or one-quarter of your plate being animal foods. Okay, so I think that's it. I hope this has been helpful in bringing more clarity and understanding to what foods might comprise an optimal diet for most of us. The takeaway here is that, yes, there are some general principles that I think we can apply to human beings, like the ideal combination uh, seems to be for most people plant and animal foods rather than exclusively plant foods and or exclusively animal foods. And also that there's tremendous room for variation within that basic template of a combination of animal and plant foods. There really is no one size fits all approach and everything from our genes to our health status to our uh, how much we're exercising and what our goals are will influence uh, what the specific optimal approach is for you or me. All right, that's it for today. Please keep sending your questions in to chriscrasser.com slash podcast question, and I'll see you next time. That's the end of this episode of Revolution Health Radio. If you appreciate the show and want to help me create a healthier and happier world, please head over to iTunes and leave us a review. They really do make a difference. If you'd like to ask a question for me to answer on a future episode, you can do that at chriscresser.com slash podcast question. You can also leave a suggestion for someone you'd like me to interview there. If you're on social media, you can follow me at twitter.com slash chriscresser or facebook.com slash chriscresserlac. I post a lot of articles and research that I do throughout the week there that never makes it to the blog or podcast, so it's a great way to stay abreast of the latest developments. Thanks so much for listening. Talk to you next time.